Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, my name is Leah Pavel. I'm one of the pastors here with my husband, Josh, up here in the corner. Um, we are in a series right now called Sacred Community. We're going to be continuing on in that series. Uh, we, I think we've got one more week left after this, and then we start Lent. Like, that's kind of crazy, right? Like Easter's <laughs> I'm afraid of it. All right. Mm. No, you're good. If you need me to switch mics, I can. Cool. Awesome. Well, this morning we're continuing on in our Sacred Community series, and I'm going to be talking about uh, one of the things that I think is probably the most quickly able to erode sacred community, this, this body of believers, you know, a, a, a church family, um, that, than most other things, something that can really super quickly erode sacred community, and that is conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ that is either unresolved or ill-resolved. Um, in the second week of this series, Josh talked about diversity and how as a part of sacred community, you know, we want diversity, we want to acknowledge all the different types of diversity that we have, you know, and there's all sorts of diversity, not just ethnic diversity, but uh, we talked about, you know, age with, with the kids that join us for worship in here, with economic background, church background, um, you know, all these different things that we come from, our, our different stories, our different life experiences, um, but there's particularly a lot of diversity, isn't there, in the way that we think, the way that we understand things, the way that our minds work, um, the, our worldviews, the way that we relate to the world, to the church, to the Bible, to scripture, um, often in the ways that we think about what is right or best for living out and walking out the stuff that's in our scriptures, right? Like there's, there's so many different approaches and, and ways of seeing that, like hello denominations, right? That's how we ended up there, all these different ways of thinking. Um, and sometimes that diversity, which is actually a really good thing in itself, can end up rubbing us a bit the wrong way and it can cause conflict. And as a people of God, like we have to expect that. We have to be ready for that and ready to handle that. Jesus expected it, and we'll, we're going to talk about that in just a minute and see where that is. Um, and then some of the biggest names in the New Testament actually experienced it and walked through it. So we're going to look at one of those stories real quick, and then we're going to talk about some other aspects of handling conflict and uh, disagreeing well. Now, I want to kind of give you... Um, like a, a little bit of a footnote or, or a disclaimer on this. Um, I, I was like less than thrilled with this topic. Just like you chose it. I know I chose it. I did it to myself. But, but the reason is, you know, as I'm preparing for this sermon, there is no shortage of like corporations out there with HR departments that are like ready to pump you full of strategies to handle conflict and the world's way of handling conflict and getting through disagreement. And they're not bad or wrong necessarily. Um, so I kind of was like, God, there's, there's, there's more to this. Like there's something in here that we need to get at that's different than like when Josh was at IBM, if he had to go to his HR person and be like, I got a problem with it, which actually he had an issue with his first office mate now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but there's something more at stake when we're talking about handling conflict and disagreement within the church. Wouldn't you agree? Like there's something more here that matters and why it's so important to do this. And so that's what I really want to try to get at this morning is, you know, we're not Coke and Pepsi or we're not like coworkers or whatever. There's something 
there's a reason we call this sacred community, right? There is something about the people of God in the church that we are trying to protect and preserve because of something that it is. Does that make sense? So keep that in mind, even when we hit like the really practical things, there's something more at stake here that really matters. Alrighty, so let's start off by looking at the example of Paul, Barnabas, and Mark um, in the book of Acts. Now, those of you who have kids back in kids' church, I did this very intentionally. Um, they're in movie day, and they are watching the story of Paul and Barnabas. So when you leave church today, you can go and um, talk to your kid about what you learned about Paul and Barnabas and what they learned about Paul and Barnabas and, and compare notes, and you, you have something in common today with them. Um, so we're going to be in the book of Acts. You're you know, welcome to jump the, uh, to Acts 12 and follow along. Um, the scriptures are going to be up on the screen. It's a good bit because we're going to jump around a good bit today. We're not reading straight through one big chunk. Um, so in, we're starting in Acts 12 here. Paul and Barnabas are ministering together in Jerusalem. They've come from Antioch. They've gone down with like basically a benevolence offering that they're taking to the church in Jerusalem, ministering together there. And Acts 20, 12, 25 says, when Paul and Saul or Barnabas, depending on what you're, what you have, um, had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned taking John Mark with them. Now, when they returned, it talks about going back up to Antioch, about 300 mile journey north. Um, and Mark is with them now. Um, fun fact, not so much a fun fact right now, but this Antioch that they're headed back to is actually present day Ant Antiochia which is what you guys are seeing in the news right now. It is one of the main cities that has been absolutely decimated by this earthquake um, in, in Turkey and Syria. And it just, it, it's, there's something so profound to me about going to study my scriptures and prepare for a sermon and to read about a town that is on CNN right now for being just in rubble. Um, a place that, that biblical stories occurred, a place where Paul and Barnabas and Mark walked and lived. Um, that, that video is on the Convoy of Hope website um, and Facebook page and all that, but they are amazing people doing amazing work. Uh, Josh and I actually got to kind of see them mobilize last October. We were at our missions leaders meeting um, in where were we? Texas, I think. Um, and that was when the hurricane came through Florida and just flooded and made a mess in Cape Coral, Florida and along the coast there. And th there's a guy that's actually a vineyard guy out in Colorado who is on staff at Convoy and a couple of the other Convoy staff were there. And as soon as it hit, like they're, like they're running out in the halls on their phones, like mobilizing, getting help to these places. And that's what they're doing for Turkey and Syria right now. So if you want to support that, you know, in a really tangible financial way, um, we, I have full confidence in them um, and in what they do and, and in their integrity um, and the way that they do this in the name of the Lord and the way that they serve with the churches and the folks are, you know, that live there and on the ground there and the resources there. So um, anyway, that's just a bit of an aside um, as we're talking about this. All right, so Paul, Barnabas, and now Mark with them are headed back to Antioch. They get to Antioch. They are in Antioch wor worshiping with the church there, and then this happens, Acts 13, 2 through 5. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. 
There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. So Paul and Barnabas are anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points them out, says, pray for them, send them out. So they're sent out, and it seems that through some conversation or other agreement or something, again, John Mark ends up going along with them to help out. Help out. And it's not all that long. They don't get all that far, and it's not all that much time. Um, they kind of make this one stop in this place called Paphos on the island of Cyprus, and I do have a map up here um, that can kind of help you see where they're going. So they start, you know, they, they start in Antioch, they go south Jer to Jerusalem, they come back to Antioch and now they're sailing over to that island there in the Mediterranean Cyprus. They make one stop there, kind of have a, 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 a go with this guy who's a sorcerer <laughs> there and, and what how God handles him. And then this happens in Acts 13, 13. Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landed at the landing at the port town of Perga, which was up on the mainland again. There, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia, different Antioch up further um, north up above where they landed. So for some reason, Mark decides he's done with this trip already. Now, we don't know what it is. We don't know what happened. It could be that this like run-in with the sorcerer that got a little weird, he was like, mm, I didn't really sign up for this. We, we don't really know. Um, it could be any number of that th those things. Maybe he just got homesick. Who knows? Um, but either way, he decides he's done with this missionary journey, and he heads back home uh, to, be, to be back home in his hometown. Um, and since the exact reason isn't clear, you know, we, we don't need to speculate too far because for our purposes today, it's not really the point. We don't really need to dig into that too far. What we find out a couple of chapters later, um, after Paul and Barnabas, they've gone and they've done a bit more traveling. They've finished their first missionary journey, which was that whole map that was up there. They kind of go up inland some, come back down, um, and head back to Antioch. So it's been a period of about 18 months that they've been gone traveling um, in total on this missionary journey. And then we find out a little later, after that's over, what the effect was of Mark's decision to leave them after they landed there in Perga. So they're back home in the Syrian Antioch, over there on the east, and Acts 15, 36 through 40 tells us this. After some time, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord. And let's see how the new believers are doing. Wise, good thing for church planters and missionaries to do, right? Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly. Since John Mark had deserted them, now those are strong words, right? Since he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them, in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him. He was his cousin, by the way. You kind of feel like you got to back your family, right? He took him with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, and as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. So Mark's leaving way back, however many months before, had this really drastic lasting effect between Paul and Barnabas to the point where these two Holy Spirit commissioned men sent out on this mission, they actually split ways. 
and they went about their business in two different directions and carried on their ministry apart from one another. So obviously this, they had some feelings about this, right? Paul didn't think that Mark should be a part of things because he had bailed on them, you know, back way earlier. Clearly Barnabas did think he should be a part of things, wanted to keep him, keep him in the group. And so they felt so passionately about this on either side of this issue. It caused a fight and a parting of ways um, and a parting of ministry partnership. That's rough, right? Like we're reading about this in our Bible. Not everything in our Bible is there because it's like, ooh, do it like this. These are examples of real people working out real issues in their ministry. And so these were differences that really potentially, there was so much emotion and a passion about it, this could have permanently severed their relationship. Two guys who had done amazing work together on these missionary journeys that they, they could have never come back together. Fortunately, what we see much later in Paul's writings is that even though we don't know the details or the timing of exactly how it happened, reconciliation did occur, thankfully. Um, in his first letter to the Corinthians, it's not up there, but Paul actually mentions Barnabas, and he acknowledges their common work together and their common purpose. And then his, in Paul's very last letter that he wrote before he passed away, he writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11. He says, Timothy, please come to me as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. Now that's a full coming around, right? Paul knows he's at the end of his life. He has been deserted by all sorts of different ministry partners that have left him for different reasons. And yet here he is asking specifically for Timothy to bring Mark with him when he comes to visit and to bring him soon because he re recognizes that he will be helpful to him in his ministry. He's clearly not counting these past disagreements and these wrongs against him, against, um, against uh, Barnabas or against Mark that he recognizes the value that Mark and his friendship is to him. And so that intense, really intense, like passionate agreement from all those years before, uh, it was a good long while by now, we're talking decades, um, they, did, they weren't the end to relationship and they weren't the end to unity. And that's what we're looking at today. Um, I wanna read you guys something really quickly from our membership agreement. We do actually have formal membership here. We're actually due for a class, overdue probably. Um, but when you become a member here, there's six basic things that you're agreeing to as a part of this body. And this is one of them that I wanna read you here. Uh, this one should be on a slide. I will edify the church by speaking well of my brothers and sisters in Christ and defending the integrity of this church body. If I have a grievance with someone in the body, I will follow the biblical model in resolving that grievance. I will refuse to participate in any form of gossip and I will actively intervene if I encounter it. I will be slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation. That's really important. Like we felt the need that we need to really put this in our agreements for each other. Y'all, here's the thing. As believers, even though we love each other and we're in common purpose, we are not always gonna disagree with each other. We're just not, right? And actually, disagreeing with each other doesn't necessarily even mean there's anything wrong. We're just different people, 
with different viewpoints sometimes, right? The nature of us as individuals working out our faith, working out our calling, working out what it looks like to actually walk those things out, you know, in real time, to walk out our calling and following the Lord. The reality of that is sometimes we're just going to disagree on what that looks like and how to go about that. Um, maybe we might even say some things that offend each other and, and hurt each other. Hopefully not, but you know, it happens sometimes. And so it is essential to healthy biblical community that we always be prepared to work through these things when they come up and when, they, when we find them uh, between ourselves and, and a fellow believer and to do it without bailing on relationship. That's what we have to keep, okay? So one of the things that is essential for our community to actually be sacred, to actually have this quality to it that we're longing for, to be like what Jesus wanted us to be like, is a certain confidence, like an assurance that's just innate in who we are, that this is going to be a safe space, that we can come as we are, we can come wherever we are on our journey, with all of our junk, right, not staying there, but that love and common purpose are going to be the substrate of what we do here and of our relationships with one another. We've, we've got to know that that's who we are, okay? We have to know that mercy really will triumph over judgment, okay? That we, what we have here in this family of faith is worth protecting and being committed to the hard, awkward, humiliating sometimes work of unity and forgiveness that it's worth it because God does something special in his people in this place in other words every single one of us needs to know that when we disagree when we mess up not if because it's going to happen we just have to expect that right that when we hurt someone or we're hurt by someone or something goes wrong and there's a disagreement that there is a commitment to love each other that's going to offer both sides the ability to both give and receive forgiveness where needed that that's just a part of the deal okay and that forgiveness, that opportunity to do that is going to be what leads us to understanding and reconciliation. And it's going to keep that sacredness of community and relationship. If we don't commit to this, all of these relationships are eventually going to fall apart because we're all flawed people, right? Those things are just going to naturally degrade. Like you guys that are married know this, right? Like you're going to disagree, even if you love each other with everything you've got. And you've got to be ready to work through that in a type of commitment that doesn't just bail when things get hard, all right? So sacred community is worth the hard work of navigating conflict. So we're going to look today at four different um, aspects of handling conflict and disagreeing well within the church. Um, these four things, they're on our slide here. It's our priority, our posture, our purpose, and our process. Now, those of you who know me and know my background, there's a nugget of Southern Baptist in me, and so every now and then when I preach, some alliteration will come out in my points. It wasn't intentional. It just landed that way. You know, there's decades of that sewed into me. Um, so yeah, we've got four points today. Our priority, our posture, our purpose, and our process. And we're going to start with our priority. This is the why. Why does this matter? Well, I've talked about it a little bit already, but we're going to get a little deeper into it. You can go on to that next slide. Um, this is the why of engaging in this is really important. Why is it important that we actually intentionally engage in hard conversations? Um, legitimate question. Can't we just try and get over it? I mean, isn't that like a fair 
way to handle these things if someone upsets us or whatever. Can't we just kind of get over it, you know, say, oh, it's fine. You know, it's okay. It's fine. Stuff it. Let it lie. Like, can I just, like, pray for them or something and be like, you know, God bless them, even, even though they hurt my feelings. Like, bless them. I love them. You know, whatever. And not actually have to say anything. Well, not if there's true conflict. Not if there's really something that's driving a wedge between you and this other person. That's actually called false peace. And all of you know what false peace feels like. It's no words but a churning and an unsettling and a, and a bitterness and a resentment grows. That's false peace, and we're not after false peace. Love requires doing the hard thing and engaging in the hard conversation, no matter how like uncomfortable it makes us feel, no matter how much discomfort it brings in us, okay? Matthew 25, 21 through 33 says this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is like a, an insult, um, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar First, go, be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So if there is something that you know about that someone has against you, maybe you legitimately did something or maybe you didn't, whatever it is, but if they have some sort of anger or whatever bitterness against you and you're aware of it, feelings of contempt, whatever it might be between you and another believer, you are on the hook to address it. That's what Jesus just said. Okay, now realize this is an excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus himself laying this out for how his followers and his people are to deal with these things. Okay, now do you realize what he's saying there in verse 23? Verse 23 is this part that's on the screen right now that if you're offering your gift at the altar, if that's when, if you are like in the midst, in the thick of your worship, and that's when you realize or remember that something is going on, what are we to do? This matters so much, Jesus says, that you know what? If there is something between you and your brother or sister in Christ, worship can wait. That's how big of a deal this is. If there's something between you and a brother and sister in Christ, you need to prioritize dealing with that thing first. Put worship on pause. Once you're reconciled, then you can come back and give your gift. Then you can come back and finish your worship. And notice that we don't actually get to say, well, they have a problem with me. I don't have a problem with them. That's on them. No, if we know about it, we're, com we're complicit if we don't do something, right? So Jesus says, so if we're aware of it, it is absolutely our problem. It is absolutely ours to deal with. And he expects us to take the initiative of reconciliation, even if we are in the thick of worship. Pause and go. He's telling us to even pause worship. If he's telling us that, that worship needs to be paused for this, guys, we need to pay attention, right? Because isn't he always calling us to worship? We don't have license to let these things fester. So why is this such a big deal? 
John 17, 20 through 21, why did Jesus take time in the Sermon on the Mount to say, this is how big of a deal this is, and this is how I want you to handle it? This again is Jesus himself praying. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's so important because our ability to handle conflict, to overcome disagreements, and to do it well with integrity and love and compassion directly impacts our ability, our, the church, the people of God, to reflect the nature of the Trinity and our ability to effectively inspire belief in God in an unbelieving world. Does that make sense? Our ability to do this well is make or break to our ability to be image bearers, to reflect him to the world, and to draw them into belief of him. That's why it's so important. That's what Jesus is getting at. Not doing this well compromises your mission and your purpose. Guys, I wonder how much was lost of our ability to reflect the Lord, to reflect Christ of our ability to be recognized as his followers and to draw others to faith in him um, during the pandemic, you know, as the world watched as the body of Christ spewed venom at each other and fought over wearing masks or getting vaccines. What a tragedy. We did it like those things defined our very worth, whichever side you came down on. Jesus prayed this prayer for his people because he knew how difficult it would be for us sometimes when we passionately disagreed to reflect his divine love and unity with one another. He prayed this thousands of years ago knowing what was coming. Another reason that we have to prioritize this, that this is our priority, Ephesians 4.27, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. By not resolving issues, guys, by leaving things to smolder and fester, um, for our feelings to compound, we open a door for the accuser himself to gain influence and power in our lives. And I don't know anyone who wants that. Our church doesn't want that. We, we open a door for him to get into our relationships and into our churches and wreak havoc. Because don't you know that he would love nothing more than the opportunity to undermine the church through unresolved conflict? He doesn't even have to do much work. He just lets us, you know, <laughs> destroy ourselves that way. Don't give him the chance. Don't leave it open for him to do that. We prioritize conflict resolution because Jesus cares about our unity. Because our unity affects our witness to the world, to those outside the walls who are watching God's people. And because grievances against one another make us vulnerable to, the atta to attack by the accuser, the enemy himself. Right. Going on to our next P, our posture. So how do we show up 
to these situations. When we realize this is something we've got to deal with and something we've got to do, um, when we have to have a hard conversation with someone, what is it that we need to bring to the table um, to make sure that this goes as well as possible? And so that's what we're talking about with our posture. Well, first, and this should be obvious, it's humility. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now I want to read this in one more translation because I want this to be real clear for us, okay? So I'm going to go to the New Living real quick. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we talking about, you know, one day, kingdom full come, heaven, something like that, we will see with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then we will know everything completely, just as not God knows me completely. So we don't have it all together right now. Guys, this is a really important point I want you to hear. God has all truth. We do not have perfect understanding of it. And that should humble us, okay? None of us are 100% correct in our understanding or our knowledge or our perception or any of those things. Our wisdom, we're just not. Now, I know that we think in our head, that we know that in our heads, right? Like if I were to ask any one of you right now, hey, do you have this all figured out? You'd be like, well, no, I'm still working on it. I'm still a work in progress. I'm not 100% right and complete all the time, right? But then why so often do we approach disagreements with other people as if we are? Yeah. Okay, we have to carry that posture of humility into these situations in love with our fellow brothers and sisters. Now, here's the thing. I know we think we're right. Okay, and that's okay. I've got it. You know, I know that we think our views and perspectives, um, you know, our, our worldview is the correct one because I assume if we thought it was wrong, we would change it to the one we thought was right. Right. So we hold the things that we believe to be true. And that's fine. But we have to hold in mind with humility that we don't know everything 100%. We don't have it all figured out, nor do we even know which pieces are wrong. Okay? So we have to hold humility in that. And if we have humility in these situations, then it should also lead us to bring kindness and gentleness into our posture. So gentleness. Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. All right, so here's a question for you. What if we are right? Like, I, I know we think we are. Some things we've got to have right, right? Can't have everything wrong, hopefully. What if we are right? Like, what if our theology or our viewpoint or our political perspective or whatever the thing is, what if we know absolutely 100% that we've got this one right, okay? Then, guys, be right without being rude. Like, be kind, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, 2 says this. If, basically this is going to say, if you're right, okay, hear that. If I had the gift of prophecy, if I understood all of God's secret plans, like you're in the inner circle, he's told you all, you know it all, you've got it all down. If I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, you know it all, and if I had such faith I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, it's nothing. Amen. Amen. So you can have it all right. Amen. And if you're not kind and loving, it amounts to nothing. What you know and how correct you are does not matter whatsoever 
if you aren't loving. Being loving is just as important, if not more so, than being right. Because love is a substrate for all of this. Now, that does not mean that truth is not important. It is absolutely important. It matters a great deal. And we are to pursue truth. We are to pursue knowledge. We are to speak the truth. But in our dealings with one another, love and kindness absolutely has to undergird everything we say and do, okay? Even if it's true, it has to be delivered in that posture. And we have to trust the Holy Spirit to bring conviction where conviction is needed. That's his job. So if we care more about being right than being loving, again, sacred community erodes, and we don't have the thing that we're striving for. All right, our next P, our purpose. So this is really what's our goal. What are we actually trying to accomplish here by doing this, okay? What are we going for? What's the end result that we want to see? Ephesians 4, 2 through 3 says this, Be completely humble and gentle and patient. We've talked about that. Bearing with one another, another in love. Why? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Unity and peace are our goals. That's what we're going through for through all of this stuff, okay? And unity that looks like what Jesus prayed about, where we are one as the Father, Son, and Spirit, as the Trinity are one. Remember, Jesus prayed that, so it's a big deal, okay? So that's what we're striving for when we engage in these hard conversations. When we're working to resolve conflicts and disagreements, we're going for that unity and that peace that is characterized by the spirit and the nature of God, okay? True peacemakers, guys, are those who are willing to disrupt that false peace to bring this kind of true humility. That's why we can't just ignore and like brush these things under the rug. We're not going for false peace. We're not going for comfort. Okay. Now, if things have gotten to the point like they did with Paul and Barnabas where there's an actual break, we have to include forgiveness and reconciliation in that goal as well, right? It but hopefully we don't let it get to that point. Um, and we get there, though. Either way, whether we're going for unity or we're going for forgiveness and reconciliation, we get there through the humility, the gentleness, the patience of a loving character. All right? Now, Kind of a side note to this. There's a few really insidious things that we have to make sure never seep their way into our purposes and our goals. And all of you are going to know what I'm talking about if you've ever been a kid or you have kids or you've been around kids. Okay? We have to guard against things like accusation and shame or heaping guilt on someone else that we know did something wrong. If we have even the most subtle of agendas to demean or punish the other person, our girls used to do this thing, Mom! Or no, no, no. They would, one of them would look at the other and be like, they would say something really loud that they knew Josh or I would hear so the other person would get in trouble and they'd feel guilty instead of just like going to them and being like, hey, don't do that, that hurt me. They had this agenda, right, of getting them in trouble, of punishing them. That is not a loving way to go about this, okay? If we're trying at all to punish the other person in any way, to evoke feelings of shame, you know, we're just not acting out of love. So make sure that that isn't creeping into your heart toward that person when you do this. Um, one other bit about our purpose 
that's not as sinister, but we've seen this really trip people up from now, from time to time. Um, our goal is not that everyone in our church is our best friend. That's just not a realistic or an attainable goal. We already talked about how different we are, right? There's a really big difference between making sure that there's no animosity between you and another person and making sure that like everyone is your bestie. And that's okay, all right? Not everyone is gonna be your cup of tea. That's okay, we're different people. There's lots of different people to hang out with, okay? You're not going to enjoy being around some people as much as you enjoy being around other people, and that is also okay. Don't let the enemy like make you feel like you're a horrible person for not trying to make everyone your BFF. It's okay. You can walk in unity and love and not have to like, you know, paint each other's nails and braid each other's hair every Friday night. I don't know. <laughs> you know? The point is don't confuse unity with affinity. Okay? You can have affinity in a BFF and really not be unified with them. The point is true unity and peace. All right, our last P, our process. This is the practicals of how we actually accomplish, accomplish this. The nitty gritty of how we go about actually having these hard conversations, um, you know, because conflict resolution and confrontation and this kind of stuff is really anxiety producing, isn't it? Like when you know you need to go talk to someone, don't you just get like the sweaty hands like, <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I do. Like, no, Chris, Chris has got it. He's good. He just, ha right on, head on, heads on. Good for you, man. You should be teaching this. <laughs> but to me, it's anxiety producing. We'd rather so many times just stuff it and be quiet and deal with it and let it go than actually go to someone and confront them and say, hey, we, you know, we need to, we need to work on this. So there's a couple of things that we're going to look at here, just as practicals. Now, again, there is a multitude of information out there from HR departments all over the world telling you how to do this well. And they're not bad, they're probably good points, but I think specifically for the church, there's a few things that we need to hone in on that matter because of what it is we're going for. We're not trying to avoid an HR write-up, we're trying to foster unity and peace, okay? So we're gonna look at a couple of those things that I think has the most impact when it comes to what our goal is. First. We need to consider what's at stake. Now, I'm gonna kinda counter myself here for a second. Because I said, no, we, we can't avoid this, we have to talk about this. Well, sometimes there's something else that we have to consider. We have to really spend some time in prayer about these conversations, don't we? Like, if you just go barreling heads in, like, I'm gonna handle this, you might not come out of this the way that you hope. But we also have to spend prayer because one of the things that we need to be praying about is whether or not there truly is a problematic conflict here. Or are we maybe just a little bit prickly and offendable? Right? Is the effectiveness of the church really at stake? Is unity and peace and relationship really at stake? Or maybe you were just hangry when they said that thing that day and it rubbed you the wrong way. Like, I've been there. Am I the only one? And when I realized later, wow, I really overreacted to that. Because that's a possibility. So if you're finding that you often have grievances or things against another brother or sister and you're finding the common denominator is you, maybe we need to take a moment to pray and be like, God, search my heart. 
have I become prickly and have I become victim of this like spirit of offense where I'm always looking for wrongs instead of calling and looking out the golden people, all right? We need to do that self-assessment and make sure that that's not where we are. Maybe it is something that stirred your emotions, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not really like something serious at stake. Relationship and unity is going to be fine if you can just get some perspective. Sometimes we just need some perspective. There are times when this verse isn't up there, but I'll read it to you. Proverbs 19.11 says this. There are times when it says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. This is a both-and situation, okay? Sometimes the glory comes in you letting it go because what's really at stake is just kind of your own stuff. Yeah? All right. So pray for discernment and perspective. But if there is a conversation that needs to happen, my first big point, dial down the drama. Like, there's enough anxiety associated with this kind of stuff. Like, don't bring extra into it. Um, I'm going to tell you, my absolute, by far, least favorite phrase in the English language is, we need to talk. <laughs> Please don't do that to me. Like, I, I'm happy to talk with people. But, like, don't, hey, we need to talk. Mm. That's anxiety producing and a little dramatic, right? There's probably a better way to do this. Now, if you're the one who's like initiating this, right? You're the one who's acting to resolve this conflict. You need to make sure that your own stuff of just trying to barrel through and get this done doesn't come into the relationship between you and the other person. Like ask the Lord to help you just lay that down before you engage, right? Maybe instead of like a, we need to talk, which I've had happen many times, maybe you need to say something like, hey, listen, um, I'd really like a chance to just chat with you about, you know, X, Y, Z that happened the other day, because that kind of like, I don't know, I didn't really enjoy that. That made me feel a certain way. Do you mind if we just like get together and hang out and chat about that? Isn't that so much more relatable and approachable than we need to talk? Don't hold that person's emotions hostage, okay? Give them as much time to mentally prepare and process as what you've had getting ready to have this conversation. That's kindness, guys. That's gentleness. That's not like leaving them in the dark to wrestle through. I've finally gotten to in my life the point where if someone says, can we talk? I'm like, yeah, sure, about what? And it doesn't matter when we book it. Like that way I am not reeling for a week or whatever it is until I have this conversation wondering what I'm going to get blindsided by. Okay, go ahead and do the work for that person if you can and be kind. All right. Throughout the entire process, our next point, however this happens, listen well. Follow the wisdom of James 1.19, which says this, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Y'all have all heard that thing, we've got two ears, one mouth, you know, listen twice as much as you speak. When it's time to talk, be a good listener. Like if you come in with your agenda and what you're going to say and accomplish, um, you might not be coming into this with unity as your goal, okay? When you listen, listen to understand, not to respond or defend. You've probably heard this before, but this is critical. I don't know if you guys have ever watched like a political debate. 
you probably have, you know, especially the ones where it gets down to like where there's like two people left and they've got their own podium and like one guy's over here and he's got the mic and he's talking and the other one is over at his podium scribbling and writing as fast and furious as he can possibly go. Why is that? <coughs> he's getting ready to re retort. He's getting ready to counter and respond, right? He's feverishly scribbling away at his podium because he's listening to rebut, not to understand. How many times in a political debate has a guy got done speaking and you hear the other one go, oh, I didn't realize that's why you voted for that policy. Huh, interesting. <laughs> Never happened. Because his purpose is to undo the other person. His purpose is to counter and rebut. Guys, we're not political opponents in this room. I don't care what the world pits against us or what people make us think about how we vote or whatever. We are not political opponents in this room. We are followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters together, unified in his name, and we are not about undoing each other. We are not about proving each other wrong. We are about understanding and unity, and that matters how we listen to one another and understand. You may still totally disagree with what they said, but now at least you understand why they said it and why they did what they did. And that gets you a lot further to loving and accepting and being at peace with that person. You can agree to disagree. Your goal is not to just argue them into submission, okay? If you find yourself, as that person is talking, creating your counterarguments in your head and what you're going to say to them when they stop talking, you're probably not listening very well and you're probably not listening to understand. There's plenty of time for that. Let that go, all right? Last point. Even if we come away from our conversation still not seeing eye to eye, which is going to happen because, again, we're very different, diverse people, right? We need to understand, guys, that our identity is in Christ, not in our belief system. Now, hang on. Isn't our identity in what we believe about Christ? Because mm -mm. we get that wrong. Do any of you have full understanding and correct belief about who Jesus is, what he does, and all that? Nope. So your identity is not even in what you believe about Jesus and his word himself. Your identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And so is the person on the opposite end of that conversation and conflict. And we need to see them that way. We have to realize that that person's theological understanding, um, their political or social leaning, however they voted, their, their way of interpreting and relating to scripture, their way of living scripture out. None of that is the full story of who that person is in Christ and as a human being. It is not the full story of who you are, and it is not the full story of who they are. Even if someone is tragically flawed and deceived in their understandings of those things, they are still made in the image of Christ and they are still invited to this table of grace and mercy to receive his love and blessing, okay? Even if they have it wrong, even if you have it wrong, that's what's important, okay? And it is that that we have to see in each other.
We are image bearers, every one of us. And we are better together. And we are made as image bearers to make this one big, giant mirror that reflects him to the world that others can look at and say, look at the diversity and the difference of opinion and all the stuff that they have thrown at them and the way that they still love each other. I want that. Not look at the way they're tearing each other apart over wearing masks or getting vaccines or the way that they voted or whatever. Let's reflect the right thing to the world so that Jesus can accomplish his mission through us as his church. Okay? Guys, Jesus has the ability to lead us into all truth. That is the Holy Spirit's job. Okay? Not ours to beat each other over the head until we get it right or what we think is right. Okay? Don't demean the work of the Holy Spirit in each other. You don't have to accomplish it. It's his and his timing, all right? And don't run the risk of viewing your brother or sister in Christ as your opposition because they're just not. They're on your team. Let's treat each other that way, okay? Awesome.